0: Hey Katon. Hey Ling. We survived domestic plant trek.
1: I know. We traveled over 12,000 miles.
0: On one train, six buses, and nine flights.
1: Visited 13 companies.
0: And probably slept about three hours a day.
1: But what an amazing trip. All the operations and technology we saw, and especially all the people that we got to meet. That was by far the best part.
0: And so glad we could record just a few little bits of things that the leaders shared with us. I'm super excited to share this with everyone.
1: Totally. This should be a great episode. From the Leaders of Global Operations program at MIT Sloan and the School of Engineering, this is the Playbook series.
0: Every year, LGOs embark on a domestic plant trek, visiting manufacturing and operation sites across the country to observe large-scale operations in the world's most impressive companies. On this special episode of The Playbook, we bring you along our 2019 domestic plant trek as we hear from diverse leaders we met along the way. Each leader will share a special page from their personal playbook.
1: Our first stop on DPT was Caterpillar in Peoria, Illinois, where our class got to tour a manufacturing facility for tractors and got up close and personal with some of Caterpillar's largest construction products in their proving grounds. There, we heard from Denise Johnson, who is the group president of Resource Industries.
2: Okay, well, one of the things that I learned as being a student at LGO that I think I didn't have the appreciation for before I entered in the program was really the power of developing and building a network. You know, I was an individual contributor working as an engineer uh, prior to the program and, and recognized it really opened my eyes to new industries, new people, new uh, ways of thinking that really helped me um, to develop in a way that I hadn't realized and be able to pull on those ideas In instances later in my career has been invaluable so one example uh, that I could give is when I was uh, working at General Motors and actually was asked to lead um, labor relations and it was uh, during a time of uh, intense negotiations with the the unions and um, I remember pulling back out my negotiations uh, classwork and actually called a few of the professors that I had from negotiations on how should I approach really difficult yeah. negotiations so that you can create situations that are win-win. And recognizing that, you know, leveraging that experience and expertise that I hadn't previously had just became invaluable. So to be able to have individuals and uh, backup material to be able to pull from uh, has been invaluable to me. Um, I would say similarly, as I've moved into to Caterpillar, you know I, I've gotten exposed to really challenges of, of how do we look at um, emerging markets and, and the opportunities there and you know with uh, with the help of um, my peers from the uh, the LGO network, I've been able to ask questions of individuals that are working at tech companies or um, that are working in you know very different situations but that have maybe a different way of thinking about how should we approach an emerging market. Uh, opportunity, Uh, whether it be an M&A opportunity or whether it be, you know, really just being able to, to capture the essence of what's important. And that really has been invaluable as well. So maintaining those friendships and alliances along the way, being able to reach out to individuals and know when to pull them in when you don't know the answers, to me, has given me a very broadened perspective that I wouldn't have had before. And so that's one thing that I continue to use and will continue to use as I move forward in my career. So LGO was very influential, and certainly I leverage that network still today. Um, But on top of that, I've met a lot of really interesting people. I've I've traveled the world. I've had a much more global perspective, Um, individuals from government, from, um, you know, from other industries as I've traveled in, in my career through General Motors and Caterpillar. And so every one of those relationships that you're able to meet someone interesting, be able to pull from, what I found is that individuals are really willing to help you um, if you yeah. ask for help, especially if, if you've learned and listened enough to understand what expertise they bring, if you ask them for help in that, they're more than willing to help. And so you have to also be willing to slow down and listen to what people bring to the table and then, then don't be afraid to call them back and yeah. leverage it for the future. And that really has, has helped me in many ways. So what
0: would be your advice to somebody who's never done this before? How should they get started?
2: Yeah, I think, first of all, if the intention of a network is not to benefit yourself. I think if you're naturally curious about people and what they are doing and why they do it, you'll naturally build that opportunity for a network. Where I found people have failed is when they're focused on, I need to meet this person because they have influence and I oh, yeah. wanna leverage that. When you do that, it ends up backfiring many times. So it really is through natural conversation and curiosity and the people that you meet. And sometimes it's the person standing next to you that you don't even know had you know, a really interesting position within the company that you learned yeah. the most from and that you can leverage for the future. So being aware of those, Taking note of those, taking those, people, those individuals' cards and, and, and following back up with them has been the
1: most helpful to me. Hopping over to Jacksonville, Florida, we visited Johnson & Johnson Vision Care, where we toured a highly automated manufacturing and fulfillment center that handles 10,000 contact lens SKUs. We spoke with Amy Goble, a recent LGO graduate, who is working at j Vision as a strategy and deployment analyst.
3: Hi, my name is Amy Gobel. I'm an LGO from the class of 2017, and I'm currently working at Johnson & Johnson. I had the privilege of hosting the LGO class of 2020 to our site in Jacksonville back in January on DPT. And in the context of that visit, I wanted to share some thoughts on the LGO playbook and how I've used that at j and so the obvious things that come to mind are the hard skills that I learned in LGO that I've gotten to apply in my time at j and J. I've been able to use uh, the Statistical Process Control class to do a design of experiments to look at the sources of variability in our manufacturing process. I'm, I'm currently working through an analysis where I'm literally using the inventory model that I learned in Sean Willem's to Operations course the first summer I was in LGO but i think like a lot of the aspects of the lgo experience the more durable parts of my playbook are the meta skills things like how do you go out with a with a very poorly defined problem statement and make something clear and tangible out of it that you can deliver to the person that asks you to do the analysis to to the stakeholders that are um, requesting this. And when you have that problem statement and you're in a big organization that isn't really prioritizing you and your needs right now, how do you make that happen? So the example that comes to mind there is actually a make versus buy analysis that I did um, about a year ago I was asked to evaluate the cost of uh, bringing a novel packaging technology for us, new to J&J, in-house versus using a supplier that had given us a quote that came back higher than we would have wanted. So I, I definitely used my experience from my internship of having this fairly broad problem statement going down to what are what are the deliverables? What is a good outcome? What is a great outcome? And then going and doing the stakeholder mapping. Who are the what are the sources of information that I'm looking for? Who are the people that can provide that information? And how do I persuade them through all of my Chaldini approaches to take the time to talk to me to give me the information that I need to have this analysis be successful and in the end that's that lgo experience definitely helped me through and helped me create something that was meaningful to the business and helped inform that
0: decision on the technology flying down to tampa florida we visited raytheon where we saw projected work instructions and other advanced manufacturing practices used to produce electronics for critical defense equipment there, we met Zach Eubanks, a recent alumni who was working at Raytheon as a senior operations engineer.
4: My name is Zach Eubanks and I graduated from LGO in 2017. Today I'm going to talk to you about buffers and their importance in operations. In any factory process, there are three possible types of buffers. Time or schedule, inventory, and capacity. In the aerospace and defense industries, we often build our products to contractual delivery dates for specific customers, meaning that we often don't build products to hold an inventory buffer. That eliminates one of the possible buffer types. In order to be successful, we need to understand the buffers that are available to us and to implement them effectively. We can often build in a schedule buffer when planning execution. Other times, there is sufficient capacity to enable us to meet commitments, but in either case it is critical to maintain some sort of buffer in order to recover when disruptions to the expected flow in the factory take place. One of the traps that is easy to fall into is to plan around average scheduled deliveries and or average capacity. In reality, a factory may have scheduled deliveries that change with time and unexpected circumstances that impact capacity. In either case, your buffer needs to be planned in such a way that you can meet your customers' expectations with an acceptable regularity. If you plan for successful execution at average capacity and schedule, and your distributions around schedule and capacity are symmetric, you're likely to see that customer expectations are not met about half the time. If you understand your schedule and capacity sufficiently, you can plan your buffers to optimally balance the cost of additional buffer with the cost of missing a commitment to your customer.
0: On the other side of the country, we visited Amazon in Seattle, Washington, where we toured one of their famed robotic fulfillment centers in Kent, seeing firsthand how each order goes from electronic signals to packaged boxes. There, we spoke with Brent Yoder, who is the Director of Reliability and Maintenance Engineering.
5: Alright, so uh this is Brett Yorder, I'm the director for reliability and maintenance engineering at, at Amazon and uh one of the things about LGO that, that I really took away was you, you took a group of individuals with a very diverse background, very diverse skill sets, put them in a common environment, right? And that's not drastically different than if you were to look at a large business such as Amazon. And so Uh, One of the things that I really learned at LGO was being curious about individuals, so when you got to know your classmates and you're asking questions, what was the environment that they worked in? What was that like? What were the problems that they were solving? How were they defining success? Uh, Just through that natural interaction of of getting to know people is something that uh, I found to be incredibly valuable in the business sense. And so uh, typically when you're coming into an organization, uh, especially coming out of business school you're going to be dropped into an organization that, that probably is a subset of the larger piece. And so one of the best things that you can do as a leader in really understanding, one, what's the core function of your group and what does success like, look like for your group? Um, but you want to make sure you don't sub-optimize for the individual role that you're in. And so, for example, uh, when I was leading a fulfillment center for Amazon, there were things that I could do that were in the best interest of my building, but it wasn't necessarily in the best interest of the network. And that could be inventory placement. It could be uh, some of the technologies that that we were actually lobbying for to get installed in our fulfillment center. It may or may not be the best decision for the business uh, based on the overall scope. And so I'm going to shamelessly plug one of our leadership principles, which is learn and be curious. Uh, That's going to be one of the keys, or that's what I've identified as one of the keys to my success is when I was in a role or when I was in an environment, I would go out of my way to contact people that were in uh, groups that I either were upstream or downstream from to understand what was their environment like, what were the problems that they were seeing. Um, And a really good example of it was uh, when we initially started rolling out Amazon Air. And so our Amazon Air program, we have the advantage that we're touching the product in the fulfillment center and then it's going to our own sortation on the ramp at the airport. And so there was an initial process that was rolled out uh, with some plastic bags and and some cardboard Gaylords that we were going to put the product in Uh, and it just didn't work very well in our operation. And so I actually reached out to the program manager and and was able to talk to the the, uh, folks that actually work on the ramp of the airport about what does their process look like. And we ended up designing a different Gaylord. And so we took some that we had, we modified them and then the feedback from the ramp came back where are these coming from who's doing this Um, and and how do we get everybody else to do it and so very quickly you're able to design a solution that uh, somebody that was working in one isolated space couldn't put together all the pieces and so we found something that not only worked well for us but it also worked well for our downstream customer Um, one other very quick antidote uh, where that made a lot of sense was um, I was a general manager Uh, working in a fulfillment center and we started seeing an increase in transship so if you order two items we may not necessarily have those two items in one of our fulfillment centers and so one fulfillment center will transfer one item to another one so that we can fulfill both items in a single box to you and we started to see this program grow and so as we grew from the 14 fc's that existed when i started nearly 10 years ago to now over 140 those interconnections between FCs expanded and now we started shipping to a lot more FCs. Well, our original process was basically one dead-end conveyor that then we were sorting the pallets, and it just wasn't scalable. When you were doing five different destinations, that was fine, you put five pallets down, but when you started having 14, 15, 16, now all of a sudden you've got pallets three, four, five deep, there's a lot of walk time, the process was really inefficient. Um, and so, one of the engineers for network design actually just happened to be walking through my building, and I knew who he was. Uh, and I convinced him to take five minutes and, and walked and showed him the process. And the very next year, all of a sudden, we had resources dedicated. We built a basically a tranship sortation conveyor that then enabled us to sort to the, all the destinations with about a third of the labor that we were using under the original process. And so. Uh, The best advice that I can give somebody is really understand what the big picture is and understand how you fit in it. Uh, You may be judged at the end of the year, graded at the end of the year on your individual KPIs, your individual metrics of of your specific department, uh, but you wanna increase the value of the company. And in in order to do that, and in in order to not just sub-optimize, but really optimize what your role is in the organization, get to know what's going on around you um, when you see people that are new and new faces that are around you, ask them who they are, what they do, how do they define success, and what metrics are they using. And so you can start making a lot of those connections, and you can really start figuring out where, where is a bigger scale improvement outside of the four walls of my building that's really going to drive a difference in the business.
1: Staying in Seattle, we visited Boeing, where we toured the Everett factory, which is the largest building in the world by volume big enough to build 747, 767, 777, and 787s all under one roof. One of our hosts was Laura Bogush, who is the general manager at Boeing Salt Lake.
6: When I was in LFM, I took a human resource uh, strategy class, and there was this case study that was about this manufacturing facility, and uh, there was this team who had... um, been one person, there was like a team of four people, one person had been staying behind every day to clock out the rest of the team, and everyone else was going home early. And so it was like, okay, discuss, right, in the class. And of course all the finance majors immediately were like, fire those people, they've been stealing from the company. And uh, I was like one of very few people in the class that had actually done the math in the case. And it turns out that that team was like 75% more productive than any other team in the facility. And so from my perspective, it was like this really great opportunity to think about how do you really incentivize your employees to continue to improve their performance. And so in the job role that I have right now, um, I actually challenged one of my team leads the other day to put together a proposal for me, um, for his team to be able to do just that, where his team would be able to like, if they got all their work done in a day, they could go home early and I'll pay them for a full day's of work worth of work. But... 90 days from then, I'm going to lower, you know, raise the bar and they're going to have to get more performance out. So then they're going to have to make a choice every day. Do we just go home or do we stay and do we work on ways to improve our productivity so we can maintain that sort of buffer of getting to go home, quote unquote, early, rather than get paid for the same amount of work? So that, that stuck with me like, significantly from my time at MIT, and uh, although it's been a number of years, I finally feel like I have the opportunity to try to put that into practice and see what that kind of, uh, it, you know, really self-managed team type uh, atmosphere could do for the business.
0: So do you have any um, like recommendations on how a new graduate should approach that sort of situation or like keep that in mind?
6: Yeah, I think that even if, even if you can't find a way to apply something right away that sticks out to you, like, don't let go of it, right? Like, keep it, keep it in your back pocket. There'll be a time and a place where the moment's right to pull that back out and to use it. And uh, for me, that's, you know, that's inspired me to kind of keep going and to, um, I want to find that opportunity to put this, this little thing that I learned into practice. That's really inspirational.
1: for listening to this episode thanks to the LGO partner Companies for hosting us during DPT Josh Jacobs and Eric Ferris for their help with the podcast and Gar Ao for the music